0: Chapter 19. My first problem as a full time manufacturer concerned the performance of the rubber tired scraper. Joe Salvador went down to Nick's job on the Salton Sea to test the machines himself. The report he brought back was sun touched, sounding as though he had done his dirt moving in a desert mirage. He had those loaded machines floating on air, towed along like balloons on a string. When I calmed him down some, he came up with a more realistic figure that was still incredible. He reported that the rubber-tired scraper required only one-third the drawbar pull of the steel-wheeled machine. And what's more, using one-third the power, you can roll twice as fast without tearing everything loose. I couldn't doubt him. Joe was a boy who could tell to the pound what his tractor was pulling. And what a picture that opened up for me. Now I could build a scraper three times as big as my first carry-all. I began to do some figuring. When a steel wheel is sunk three inches in sand, it has a three-inch hole to be pulled out of. That's like having the wheel blocked with three-inch chocks. But the starting pull doesn't get it out of the hole. The wheel continues to sink into the sand as it rolls forward and thus it is in a constant state of climbing out of the hole. In short, it has an uphill climb all the way. The rubber tire, spreading its weight on an air cushion, what we now call flotation, greatly reduced the angle of climb and thus greatly reduced the amount of pull needed. They had worked fine on Nick's job where sand was all he encountered, but what about on the average construction job where freshly rooted or blasted rock was the rule? The truck tires I was using, inflated to 80 pounds, just couldn't take it. On the other hand, the automobile industry was turning to balloon tires of lower and lower pressure. If I could get the tire companies to make me some giant, low-pressure tires, then I might have something. A soft tire would enfold sharp rock and tough, yielding rubber, and there would be no blowout. That thought brought up another big advantage. When a steel wheel encounters unyielding rock, it has to climb over it, be it only an inch high. And every time you have to lift 25 tons an inch, you've wasted more power on lifting than on pulling. A soft, yielding tire would just absorb such obstacles, not raising the load by a tremor. Of course, the above features were not news to the tire companies, but you would have thought so from the reaction I got. When I presented them with their own theories on low-pressure tires as applied to my business, they gave me the usual verdict. I was crazy. While I argued it out by mail and long-distance telephone with the tire companies, I continued to buy all the big truck tires I could get, and in one instance I was able to pick up some huge, low-pressure airplane tires when a bomber program was discontinued. Their durability and superior performance gave me the confidence I needed to go ahead, especially when I discovered a truly remarkable asset that had nothing to do with my theory. I noticed that when an operator is towing a jolting, banging, spine-wrenching machine, he doesn't care how much abuse it gets. It's his way of getting back at it for the kicking around it is giving him. But when he has a relatively quiet machine behind him, smooth rolling, and with the shocks reduced to a minimum, he tends to take care of it. And with easier maneuverability, he swings around more to find the paths of least resistance, and the result was a pronounced increase in loading efficiency along with an equally pronounced reduction in wear and tear on both scraper and tractor. Even with these facts, I couldn't get a rubber company to build the tires I asked for. The point is, Letourneau, a big company man finally told me, it would cost us thousands of dollars just to build a tire mold of the size you're asking for. Then you try it out and go broke, and where does that leave us? I thought that one over. As long as I had my neck out, I might just as well pull it out to full length and give the axe man an easy target. All right, what if I build my own mold? Then will you make my tires for me? That is what I had to do. And even now, I find the results rather staggering. In 1933, my sales had mounted to $379,106.53. In 1934, they had shot up to $929,860.67, of which $340,275.49 was net profit, or nearly as much profit as total sales had been the year before. The Stockton plants, what with the machine tools Vernon Love had purchased in case I'd gone broke, were filled to overflowing. The scraper assembly line that Elmer Isgren set up was more on the order of a labyrinth than a straight line, with the overhead crane and jib cranes working overtime to lift the scraper being assembled over intervening machinery, along with a little backing and filling on the way. We had outgrown ourselves, and the time had come to move. Up to now, we had made virtually no effort to invade the huge field east of the Rockies. In the meantime, the Holt and Best tractor companies had merged to form Caterpillar, and in the interests of central distribution, had set up their plant at Peoria, Illinois. Since we had always worked with them, my scrapers, bulldozers, rooters, and dump carts being designed to work primarily with Caterpillar tractors, with special equipment to adapt them to other tractors, Peoria looked like the logical site for my invasion of the East. To cinch matters, Dan Burgess worked out an arrangement with Caterpillar by which we got sales representation in the many sales centers they had all over the nation. It was not an exclusive deal by any means. Caterpillar, supplying the traction power for contractors all over the world, no more wanted to limit itself to powering Letourneau equipment than I wanted to refuse sales to owners of Case, Alice Chalmers International, and tractors of other makes. I think the best way to put it is that my machines were a selling point for them, and their sales offices were my ready-made selling points. In Peoria, I found that the old circus lot down on the river, covering 23 acres, was for sale. It looked so made to order that I didn't even stop to ask about the flood stage of the river, an omission that gave my scrapers and bulldozers many hours of frantic testing, building the levees higher and higher as the floods got worse and worse. My first trip to Peoria was made in January 1935. I instructed Carlton Case to buy the property and made some tentative arrangements to have a factory 60 feet wide by 300 drawn up and completed by fall. But even by the time I returned from that rush trip, it was clear that we couldn't wait until fall. The backlog of orders had piled up to the point where either we produced or we lost a lot of sales to customers who would not think kindly of us. On the 1st of April, I loaded a freight train with machine tools and with about 75 key men started for Peoria, ready or not. I don't think our neighbors in Peoria will forget our arrival in the midst of a raw spring rain that lasted two weeks without let up. There wasn't even a railroad siding on which to sidetrack our train. Out went the bulldozers and scrapers and sheepfoot rollers and in went the siding. The factory site was just mud, with some surveyor's stakes sticking up, but off to one side was some slightly higher ground, less soggy than the rest. We tied into a power line, got our welding equipment going, and overnight welded a crane around the chassis of a tractor. Maybe the circuses that had once occupied the old lot had set up faster, but in three days the crane had unloaded all the machine tools carried them to the high ground, and they were in operation, turning out the first of the 13 scrapers we built in the rain that month. By the end of that month, too, we had the foundation in for the factory, and as fast as the roof went up, we moved the machine tools undercover, shutting them down only for the length of time it took to move them and bolt them to the floor. Said Pop Cook, Bob isn't rushing this factory just to get us out of the rain. He just doesn't want to pay for all the tools we're losing in the mud. Through all of this, Evelyn was right with me. I remember the day some industrialists' wives came to call to welcome her to Peoria. She was down at the factory site, using the family Chevrolet to snake steel beams off a flat car so we could clear the track for another trainload of steel. And that reminds me of our house. Case had bought for us a large old frame house, big enough, he wrote, for all five kids. Our son, Ben, had been born on March 21, 1934, and a good thing it was big. As fast as our homeless crew arrived from California, Evelyn began taking the boys in until we had 24 of them, and seven of us bedded down and fed there on two shifts of day and night workers. It worked out fine during the week, and you only had to be careful about not stepping on anybody in the dark. But on Sunday, when both shifts were home, it got a little crowded. The confusion didn't end with the completion of the factory in September. When the last weld was finished, we just hauled the welding machinery around to the back and welded on another factory the same size as the first. And when that was done, tired of patching, I sent them around to weld on another section to double the size again, bringing the total length to 1,200 feet. Most of the machine tools which filled it I had invented for my special purposes, and about this time I began to notice I was being called R.G. All my associates from California called me Bob, and I thought the R.G. was just the eastern way of addressing the boss by his initials. Well, maybe so, Bob, said Pop Cook, but the way I heard it, the R.G. stands for Rube Goldberg. All of this was exciting enough, but as far as my partnership with God is concerned, one of the big events of my life occurred on the day I was called upon to address the Peoria Chamber of Commerce. The whole idea of standing up in front of a lot of men terrified me. I still hadn't been able to talk to anything larger than a young men's Sunday school class and not too well there. What could I tell a chamber of commerce meeting? I knew also that they thought I was something of a crackpot with wild ideas about manufacturing with a welding torch and even wilder ones about being in some kind of partnership with God. It's bad enough to have to talk, I told myself, without being pegged as a loony before you open your mouth. When the hour arrived, I wasn't calmed any by the fact that the loudspeaker system wasn't working very well. If the experienced speakers ahead of me were having difficulty holding the crowd's attention, what would happen to me? Then I began to wonder how many of those fine businessmen knew the Lord as I did and had Him to help them over the rough spots. I felt a desire to give a few words of personal testimony. I argued it down, telling myself, This is a business crowd. They want to hear something about your business. The desire persisted and grew stronger, so I just made a silent prayer. Lord, if you want me to say a few words along spiritual lines, you will just have to give me the words. I got my introduction and stood up. I wasn't nervous anymore. I didn't need the weak microphone. I discovered the Lord had given me a good loudspeaker of my own, and suddenly I had the strength to use it. "'I'm glad to be in a city with so many fine churches and so many Christians who love the same Lord I do,' I began. "'You know, our forefathers came to America seeking freedom to worship God. They put on our coins the words, "'In God We Trust.'" And God blessed this land above all others. You may wonder what religion has to do with business. And I used to wonder about it myself. Now I know it was our forefathers' faith in God that made our country great. I believe we need to get back to that faith. And when we do, God will lead us out of the depression we've been in. I was that far, and no one had walked out on me yet. We know as businessmen that when we have a product that won't work, it won't sell. And we hunt around until we get a product that will work and will sell. Now I ask you, what's the use of having a religion that won't work? If I had a religion that limped along during the week and maybe worked only on Sunday or while you're in church, I don't think I'd be very sold on it. I think I'd turn it in on a new model that worked seven days a week that would work when I was at church, in my home, or out at the plant. And that is what Christianity does. Then I stated publicly for the first time the theme I'll never stop repeating. The preachers can tell us that Christianity works. They're God's salesmen selling salvation in the Christian way of life. But unless we businessmen support them and testify that Christianity is the driving power of our business, you'll always have doubters claiming that religion is all talk and no production. I didn't get much of a hand at the conclusion of my first public speech. By the time I got home, I was convinced that the only one I had sold was myself. Evelyn and I found a seat on the back stairs that no boarders were occupying at the moment and figured it out. We claim to be in partnership with God, I began, but we aren't really. We have a good year and we give Him a tithe as His share. In the old days, a tithe was forced on people and they had to give 10% of their income to God whether they wanted to or not. Now, We aren't compelled to give to God. It's all voluntary. The only thing is, when you consider what God has done for us, we ought to do better for him out of gratitude than the doubters had to do by law. You get right down to it, and we believers aren't doing a bit more than the doubters had to in the old days. Now what's on your mind, Bob? asked Evelyn. Just this. I think we've got to do more, I said. The idea had been with me a long time, and the talk with Evelyn gave it form. Let's set up a foundation, a foundation dedicated to God and his works. We give half the stock in the company to the foundation and keep half for ourselves. Then half of what the company makes goes to the foundation and half goes to us. Well, that sounds fine, Bob, said Evelyn, but. but what? Well, the company is getting so big, and pretty soon it will be doing all the work. You, you know what I mean. I didn't, but I could sense what she was driving at. A hick from Duluth, and a small towner from Stockton, and neither one of us with a high school education, and sales zooming toward a figure that would go over the two million mark for 1935. She was frightened, and now that she brought the subject up, so was I. "'You mean if we just give God half the profits of the company, we won't feel anything personal about it?' I asked. She nodded. "'Your brother Bill tells me we'll have over a half-million profit this year. If we give half of that to the Foundation, what can we do with a quarter of a million dollars?' The most I have ever spent in my life on the house was $5,000, and, well, it's just too much. Okay, we'll give half the company profits to the foundation, and then we'll give half of our own income to keep it personal. How, How does that sound? I thought that sounded fine, but Evelyn wasn't through. That still leaves an awful lot but I thought I saw the end of the line. That goes back into business for expansion, I said. It wasn't the end of the line. Since then, we've been able to increase the holdings of the foundation to 90% of our common stock and 90% of our income. Currently, the Laterno Foundation is worth some $40 million after distribution of $10 million to religious and educational works. Once more, I called in Carlton Case. "'I want you to set up a foundation for us,' I said, "'a foundation to sponsor religious, missionary, and educational work for the greater glory of God. I don't know what the laws are, but I want you to fix it so that the funds of the foundation can never be used for company or personal purposes. If for any reason the foundation is dissolved,' Its resources are to be turned over to the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. I clearly remember his answer. You're out of your mind, he said. But then, you always were. Whereupon he became one of the staunchest supporters the Foundation ever had. But even while I was organizing the Foundation, another strange thing was happening. Unbeknownst to me, several ministers had been present when I gave my talk before the Chamber of Commerce. I think they came to see what kind of man it was who claimed to be in partnership with God and fully expected to find a religious fanatic. When they heard me express the conviction that it was up to the businessmen to support their pastors by testifying to the power of the Lord, they must have decided I was all right after all. The phone started to ring. Would I speak before the congregation of the Baptist Church on Sunday? I've only made one speech in my life, I protested, and you've already heard it. And I thought it was fine, replied the pastor. Just give the same one. It was with considerable trepidation and a return of the old panic at the thought of speaking in public that I agreed. And then, having agreed to speak in one church, I couldn't very well refuse to speak in the others. Hooked, I thought to myself. Now, how are you going to get out of it or live through it? I had nothing to worry about. Praying to God that night, I received his assurance that my testimony would help his work, not only in man-to-man and neighbor-to-neighbor talk the way I had worked before, but before large congregations. And then, while the prospect filled me with dismay, me, an uneducated man with a vocabulary picked up in the construction business, trying to speak in great churches, I got assurance of another kind. I seem to have heard the words so clearly that I can almost quote them as real. When the Lord has a job for you to do, He'll give you the strength and the ability to do it.